everyone. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of When I Grow Up. On today's episode, it is my pleasure to welcome um, Daniel Wang. Hey, Daniel, how are you? Hi, doing well. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Daniel, you are joining us from Ohio, correct? Yes, um, I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I grew up here um, and, and now I'm back here after college living and working. So Nice. And then where did you go to college? I went to school at Georgia Tech. I studied mechanical engineering there for four years, just undergrad. And uh, that's how we came to know each other <laughs> yes. through, through, through friends of friends. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so it's a lot of um, what two degrees of separation, I feel like. Right. Um, Edward Sun is is somebody that connected me with you, who's also been on the podcast yes. uh, for his genius graphic design work. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you again for joining me. So Daniel is what he called a humanitarian engineer, and I am super excited to hear more about what you do, Daniel. So without any more, you know, delay, what is it that you do? Yeah. Uh, that's a great question, and it's it's kind of not an easy answer. So, I'll, but I'll try to I'll try to make it make sense. So, um, I work for a a small company here in Columbus, Ohio, called Design Outreach. Two words, and they are a Christian nonprofit engineering company. Mm. And and each of those terms, you know, means a lot to our identity. So, Christian being the first one, um, our one of our core values is is faith. So, a lot of the all the decisions we make, the work that we do. Um, the reason that we're in this this space is because uh, we don't want to just serve people's physical needs, um, but also bring them the gospel, um, preaching the word to people. Uh, and, and you'll see how that comes up more in, in, the, in the rest of what I'll say. Um, nonprofit is a big part of our work because um, the work that we do, a lot of times it doesn't stand to earn a profit. It's, it's humanitarian work, right? So it's serving people um, in a way that's more altruistic. It's not like selling products, selling iPhones or something. Um, and then engineering organization. So um, we spend most of our time doing research and development. Um, and this is this is probably what's most looks like engineering. Um, we're doing design work on the computer. We're doing testing. We're doing prototyping um, all towards making products that can um, serve people better. And what I've been alluding to this whole time of serving and, and products, what does that mean? Um, our mission is we want to alleviate global poverty, which is a really big mission. Um, and the way that we see ourselves uh, being part of that mission is creating life sustain, what we call life-sustaining technologies. And right now, our, our flagship product is something called the Life Pump. It's a hand-operated water pump um, because uh, there's millions of people in the world, frankly, that don't have access to um, clean, reliable water. Um, a lot of times they rely on what are called unprotected sources. They're uh, just open streams, rivers, um, what, well, they would, what they would call streams or rivers, but actually when you, when you see it firsthand, it actually just looks like kind of like a muddy puddle and um, it's exposed to the elements, it's exposed to animals walking through it and just people putting their hands in it. There's no protection, it's unprotected source. And um, that can lead to naturally a lot of diseases, a lot of harm for these people, but they often have no choice because they just have no other source of water. So um, this humanitarian space and, and creating hand pumps to serve these people, this is not like a new trend at all. Mm -hmm. um, this has been, this is, this is work that humanitarian organizations, NGOs have been doing for decades. Um, but if you ask our company and the way that we see the problem, um, 
it's there's there's something unsustainable and not long-term about the solutions that have been historically done and, and used in the field because you see um, all these countries and all these organizations with really good intentions, I believe, are pouring, at this point, have probably poured over, trilli- over a trillion dollars into um, African nations and just a lot of other, a lot of countries, not just Africa, um, mm-hmm. but many countries who um, lack so much, and yet we don't see um, lasting change. These people are still often without water. They're still living in ways and in standards that are way below what we would deem acceptable for ourselves. And we trace a lot of that back to um, the motivations for your work and also um, kind of the, the way that you approach technology. So we would say for our technology, um, we want to partner with the people that we serve rather than just giving them technology and kind of just dumping it on them and expecting them to use it and figure it out. But we, we want to step alongside them and train them to have agency and have some part of the repair and the maintenance. And also we commit to coming back to these communities over time, repairing these pumps, because the reason why a lot of times previous pumps have failed is because they don't get repaired, they break down, and then it just becomes non-functional. You have a well that can't be used anymore. And, um, and behind all of that, right, is our, is our commitment to loving these people because we love Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not because we stand to gain anything from it, but we want to see them be honored as human beings. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, we want them to meet and, and know, know Jesus as well. So I think uh, that that combination of being a Christian nonprofit engineer organization, there are many Christian organizations, there are many engineering organizations, but there's not many that do exactly what we do in our space. Um, so we take a lot of we take a lot of pride in that. And bringing this back full circle, that that makes me a humanitarian engineer because mm-hmm. I'm part of the the engineering that goes on to do this. So I'm based here in the U.S. in Columbus, um, but obviously the work and the the result of all our work. And the hopes is, is to serve a lot of times these people in countries outside the U.S. So that was probably a longer answer than you expected. But. No, that was like amazing. I um, wow, this is like so fascinating to me because I think what you said that there are a lot of, you know, humanitarian organizations that do nonprofits and then there's engineering organizations. But that are Christian, right? But to bring the two together seems really um, effective, like for me as a Christian myself, right? right. Um, so, and then I'm married to a, an engineer as well, as I mentioned before uh, we started recording. And so, you know, even just, it kind of resonates in the fact that, you know, he himself as a structural engineer has always talked about like, you know, wanting to do more with it instead of just building here in the U.S., you know? And I, I didn't even know design outreach existed. It's so amazing. <laughs> Me neither, amazing. <laughs> Me That's neither so until cool. until just a few years ago. Yeah. And um to your and to your point, yeah, that was something that was really new to me too when I was in my junior senior year. So disclosure, I actually graduated in 2020. So I'm I'm very new to the yeah, job scene, yeah. the full-time market. <laughs> yeah. So maybe, maybe I don't look that young, but anyhow. Um well before I graduated, I also, you know. In my heart, I had convictions about um, I wanted to do something clearly related to my major, mechanical mm-hmm. engineering, related to my interests, but also wanted to pair that with faith. Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, I really didn't know what that would look like. Um, I had received, you know, very good advice and, and input from from pastors, from older older um, Christian brothers and sisters, and their answers weren't bad, but they always kind of centered around just like you know, be honest in your work, don't mm-hmm. cheat, don't lie. Um, be excellent. And when you do have a chance to evangelize in your work, go ahead and do it and, and be bold about it. And, and those things are good. 
But uh, for me personally, I was like, oh, that doesn't feel satisfying. Like there must be something more. And, um, and I can tell the story later if you're interested, but um, through interesting circumstances and connections, I came to hear about design outreach. And I was like, wow, this is so interesting. I've never heard of anything like this before where I could be an engineer, um, but also the work that I do is so directly connected to serving people and, and, and proclaiming the gospel. Mm. Um, yeah, I find that fascinating. And, right. and I'll be the first to say, uh, I don't want to put design outreach on a pedestal or say that under engineering work is not important as a believer, but it's just a really great privilege to be able to see, yeah, such a direct connection between the work that we do and, and how it's serving people and benefiting people. So, yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love it. Oh my goodness. I wish I was an engineer. <laughs> Sign me up. But okay, so my question is now you as an engineer, and you said that you do kind of, you know, the parts of making the products for whatever work that you're doing that is sustainable to make it sustainable um, in in other countries and that that need this kind of technology. Um, So what does that mean for you? Like, what does your day to day look like? Mm. So um, our our design outreach from what I've said so far, you probably don't have a scope or a sense of how big it is. We're, we're a small company right now. We've, um, you can't, you shouldn't quote me on these, these dates because it's the, it's not super clear to me because it also kind of happened in phases that our two co-founders, they met and um, were volunteering as engineers themselves in this space, even before they formally incorporated the company. So oh, like, wow. you know, they, they kind of have history before that, but yeah. I would say we've been around for less than 10 years, almost 10 years now. And our team is probably around 12 to 15 between full-time and part-time staff. Okay. So um, it's a small team. I I, I consider that a pretty small team. And because of that, um, you naturally just have your hands in a lot of buckets. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, for, you know, it depends on a given project, what I'll be doing. But um, so for instance, right now, um, one of my major projects is testing um, the next generation of Gearbox Gearbox is basically the the metal enclosure that has two gears inside that um, if you, it'd probably be helpful if I could show a picture of a life pump, but normal hand pumps, you kind of do like an up and down motion. Like if you imagine like like a farmhouse. What I'm imagining is like the one that's like in the ground Mm -hmm. and then it has the, the pump part and then usually it has like a spout, right? Yes. Okay. Is that what it looks like kind of? That's what most hand pumps look like. Okay. And that's, that's what I imagine too. If I think okay. about like on a farmhouse or, okay. or somewhere out in, out in, uh, out in like the United States country, right, <laughs> that's what right. I would imagine as a, and it's, it's called a piston pump. That's the, that's the central mechanism of how it works. Uh-huh. The way our pump is different is it, it's just a completely different um, technology and mechanics that bring up the water. It's called a progressive cavity pump. That's like the, if you want to know the, the, technical terminology but it basically instead of doing this up and down motion now we have two handles and it's like a bicycle it's like this kind of motion and um, because of just how the technology is different progressive cavity pumps have what we believe are a lot of advantages to other hand pumps progressive cavity pumps can pump water from deeper Um, they can they can reach deeper in the ground because if you imagine as you're pulling water from the ground I mean, water is pretty heavy, especially when you have to pull it from really deep underground. These traditional hand pumps, they can only go so deep before trying to pump that much water from that deep. It's just like humanly not possible. Like mm-hmm. we, you just get tired so quickly. You mm-hmm. can't do it. But with the progressive cavity pump, because of the way the physics work, you can actually go a lot deeper and still be manageable for humans. Mm-hmm. And this is a big deal reaching water deep because I mean, on, in some cases, previously 
when a community would need water and they only had the options of traditional hand pumps, they would say, hey, we know there's water, let's say 100 meters deep, but this hand pump can only reach 50. So, you know, we can't even help you even if we wanted to. But the life pump is able to reach that deep. So now we have an option that previously wasn't even there. Or in examples where both pumps would be able to reach the same level, you know, just like here in the US, um, a lot of these countries in Africa, they go through dry and wet seasons. Mm -hmm. So during the dry seasons, the, the water table, you know, the well in the reserve of water underground where you're pulling all the water from, it drops. So it can drop low enough that it'll actually go below the level of your 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 uh, pump. So then also you're, you're not pumping water, you're just pumping air. So it's a really big advantage to be able to go deeper. And there, there's other advantages too to, to progressive cavity pumps, um, one being the, uh, the way that the parts move and interact with one another, if they're designed properly, um, they should be able to last a really long time without a lot of maintenance, which is a big, again, a big obstacle right, for right. a lot of these rural communities that we're serving because they don't have access to supply chain. They don't have access to um, technicians who can just go out there on a, on a day's notice. And, um, and again, something that I'm alluding to that, that we say a lot at Design Outreach, we talk a lot about reliability to and consistent mm -hmm. access to water because- mm -hmm. Like for us, when I wake up in the morning, I don't think twice about whether I can wash my hands or flush the toilet or yes. take a shower. And especially when there's a pandemic going on, like even more important that we're able to have access to clean water. And for, for these people, um, the consistency is what matters so much. In the past, if, if pumps break down and they, they can't depend on water always being there, they can't do things like um, raise livestock or, or, or plant gardens. They have to spend so much time in their day going to the river, going right. to these distant locations and getting water that's not even clean. But when you can trust that water is always going to be there, you can invest your time into other things. Children are able to go to school. Parents are able to do other things during their day. And so that's why this consistency, this uptime is so critical. And um, that's something we really, really push with, with our pumps. And I think we're, we're proud to say that for some of the pumps that we've put in, in, um, in the country of Malawi, um, which is one of the countries we work in a lot in Africa, um, our, our best success stories, they've been running for like six, seven years now without need for major maintenance, which is like a really big deal. <laughs> um, it, it, to put it in perspective, like um, they, they've done studies before of traditional hand pumps and um, I, the statistics are wild. I, I, I don't want to say exact numbers because I don't remember, but like very often pumps can fail after just six to 12 months. And oh um, even if they do work longer than that, um, or like within within like a four year span, even even greater percentage are are, are out of service and and ultimately never get repaired um, for for a multitude of reasons. So, oh, again, I, I you got me talking a lot no, about I, just a simple is, question, but this yeah. is great. I'm like so fascinated right now about even just the technology of the well being able to dig deeper because I do have friends that work in um, nonprofit organizations that are working themselves on getting water to communities and I'm like, man, I need to tell them about this. I don't know how you guys find the places that or how do you guys find the places that need um, your help? That's a great question as well. So when I said earlier that we focus as an engineering company, um, the, the way we see ourselves and our role in this, in serving people, excuse me, is primarily through research and development. Okay. Our, we only have one office here in Ohio in the U.S., only one U.S. office. And um, so maybe connecting to your other question too, the work that I'm doing maybe on a daily basis is um, sometimes I'll, I mean, I haven't done much of it yet, but I know I will be using CAD and, and designing things and engineering drawings. I'll be communicating with um, uh, 
our manufacturing department to say like, hey, are these things able to, can we make these things the way we want to? Mm-hmm. Um, right now, I'm in a, one of my important projects is testing that gearbox I was talking about earlier, yes, yes. making sure that the gearbox um, lasts as long as we want it to, or at least we can try to verify it's going to have the reliability that we want it to have. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of like classic engineering steps <laughs> to, towards like make, bringing a product to market. Mm-hmm. Um, so we at Design Outreach, we we focus on that element of this humanitarian arc of serving people. I see. The people who actually put the pumps into the ground, who are doing a lot of the community outreach and working with people in the field, that often is not us directly, mm-hmm. but partners that we that we come to know and work with in the field. Um, and I think some some people, or I mean, there's there's multiple ways of thinking about that. One could be, oh, you should be the ones doing everything in the process because if you have control over the whole process, you have you know, a lot more accountability, you have a lot more just control and you can, you can follow everything. Maybe it's more optimized. I think there's also a really good argument for the way we do it with partners in the field, because um, first of all, we have a small staff. So it'd be really hard for us to go to, we're, we're working in 10 countries now um, to do all that work with just the, the limited number of people we have. And, and we don't want to reinvent the wheel. There's, there's um, foreign pastors, foreign missionaries, aid groups, humanitarian groups who have been in these countries for years, who know sure. the people way better than we do, who yeah. know the culture, who know, like, you know, we don't want to, we, we don't want to get rid of that. We want to, we want to tap into that. And um, if they have the same heart that we do, the same vision for serving these people, like we just want to bring, we want to come alongside them and do work with them rather than trying to, trying to, yeah, reinvent the wheel that they've already figured out. Right, and right. so, and so a lot of times they're the ones who have probably the best insight to make decisions about where to put pumps, you know, which com- communities to serve. And, and those aren't easy decisions because there are countless communities that need water and we can only drill pumps right now so quickly and put in pumps so quickly. Like our capacity is not infinite. And so those are hard decisions that I don't envy. <laughs> like I would not want to make that. Right. Um, but, but a lot of times, yeah. So um, we call these organizations in the field, like implementers, they're the ones actually putting the technology into the ground, into the field. Um, and, and we, we really value that partnership that we can have with them. So, so everyone's doing what they're most skilled at. These missionaries, they've gone to seminary, they've trained, they, they, they are very relational people. They know how to um, have these communities and prove their trust or prove mm-hmm. that we deserve their trust, mm-hmm. that we, when we come into the community and do all this work, that this really for their good. And then for us, you know, we're blessed by God to have talents and inclinations towards engineering and that kind right. of work. Maybe not as much this relational field work, but but this kind of so everyone's, you know, a valuable part in, in this big process. Um, and, and I said earlier that a lot of times we aren't the ones going into the field. But recently, I actually did get to go to the field because, you know, we don't go often. But sometimes with select projects, when they are um, really high stakes or the uh, the partner we stand to help the partner a lot. If we show mm-hmm. up, um, we will actually go to the field. So okay. um, I can share about that. Yeah, please in a sec, do. But, but I was going to ask you before you do. Um, you said if the stakes are high, but what would what would that what does that mean? What does that entail? Right. So a lot of times when we work with these partners, you know, most life pumps that go into the ground, they go in without us there. There are you know partners that we work with who. Um, Sometimes we actually have some field staff in Africa, mm-hmm. individuals that we basically employ who we've trained and, excuse me, it's their job to, to help us with pump installations. They know the local language. They're actually local Africans okay. that we work with. 
um, high stakes. An example is is a good example is the trip that I recently went on to Zimbabwe. Uh, we were working with a rural hospital in the northern part of the country called Karanda Mission Hospital. And they were planning to put in 19 life pumps for communities around the hospital. And, and that's a lot. That's, that's a, a lot, lot of pumps. pumps. And um, that's a lot of work for just the missionary team. And even the, the gentleman we employ there, his name is Washington. It's, it's a lot of work for them to do on their own. And um, so, so for us to be there, our team to support them and physically, you know, put our backs into the work because there's a lot of manual work when you got to put these pumps in. But also, mm-hmm. we, we, we are the experts on our own products. So we can troubleshoot. Uh, we can be there to make sure everything's going smoothly so that when these pumps go in, they're working well from day one. Sure, yeah. And um, so that's an example of kind of like a higher stakes situation and where it would, it would make a lot of sense for us to to spend the money and time to travel and support right. our partners. Yeah, I mean, um, 19 pumps and everything needs to go right. The f- I mean, like, I wouldn't imagine it goes right the first time either because don't you have to dig and stuff too? That's a really good, you have a really good intuition, yeah. Um, so a lot of times, um, or every when we do pump installations, a lot of work has to be done before we get there. So right. drilling the actual hole, we, we usually lay a concrete pad to, to to with the base to put the pump into. That work was done even before we got there. Okay. Um, but when we do get there, we help with um, the pump construction. And so I talk about pumps, and to me, since I've been seeing them every day, it makes a lot of sense to me. But the way I try to explain it is, basically, there's a there's a gearbox at the top with handles that pull the water up into a spout, and a well is basically just a really, really deep hole with water at the bottom. Uh-huh. And um, these pumps, the way they're built are just really, really long straws that you want to basically suck the water all the way out mm-hmm. from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And there's no way for us to like build this 100 meter straw and just ship it to Africa because right. it's huge. <laughs> so right. what we do is we, we, we build it in sections. And then each of those pipe sections in the field, that's where we assemble everything by hand. Nice. We lower it in by hand. And we eventually, when it gets really heavy with all these metal rods together, we have to use something called a chain hoist to lower it down. But basically, we construct this really, really long straw that eventually um, reaches the bottom of the well and can pull the water up. So you're totally right. Um, I actually, (laughs) before I went on this trip, I was even under the impression that, you know, I I understand generally the work that we do and putting in pumps is like pretty easy. You know, you just build the straw in the field, you put it into the ground, you pump it and it works. And I learned, a big thing I learned from this trip was it's not easy. It's really Mm -hmm. hard oftentimes when you're working. First of all, it's just, uh, it's hot. You're working in, 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 in the outdoors, in the bush, basically. And, um, if anything goes wrong, which things do, you have to be really scrappy. You can't just go to Lowe's or Home Depot and buy replacement parts. There's nothing out there. Right. And, um, and it, it, yeah, it takes a lot of like, um, cleverness to figure out when things go wrong. Yeah, like, like so what happens? <laughs> like, if something goes wrong, like, what then? Yeah, I mean, it's a case-by-case basis, but there were actually a few really, really um, standout examples from our trip where this happened. So one time, um, it was in this community called uh, Kadondo, where we had put in a we had put in a pump, basically, we installed it, everything perfectly. We were at the very last step of, like, basically securing the pump, making sure it was good. And we realized the pump was jamming. Like we, we, you should be able to turn the handles normally and water should come out from the very beginning. It shouldn't be an issue, but they were getting stuck. And um, my, my team and I, we realized really quickly, like this is, this is very unusual. This doesn't happen. (laughs) This shouldn't be happening. It should just Mm -hmm. be pumping normally. And it was, Mm -hmm. there's so much resistance. You couldn't force it. And so we tried to pull the pump basically back out of the ground using this, this chain hoist because it was very heavy and the pump wouldn't pull out all the way which was unusual. 
So we said, okay, well, let's put it back down. Maybe we need to collect our thoughts. Maybe we need to come back tomorrow to fix this because um, we were running out of daylight at that point. And mm-hmm. when it gets dark in Zimbabwe, it's really dark because mm-hmm. there's no street lights or anything. Mm-hmm. So we tried to put the pump back down. It wouldn't go down. So we had this pump like halfway in the air. It's really hard to describe without pictures, but this is a, this is a very unusual I I situation. See I see it in my head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You see it in your head? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and and we were like, what is going on? This is so unusual. And eventually, thankfully, my boss was there. And he, he's been working, you know, longer at this company than I have. So he has a lot more experience and knowledge of these pumps. And he said, you know, I think we have to cut basically through the bottom of this, the first section of the straw. And um, this was like a pretty extreme decision. Like afterwards, because it, because it turned out okay, we could joke about it, but it was akin to like cutting off your leg if you're stuck in a trap or something. Like oh we had never done this in the field. We're basically destroying part of our own pump to try to rescue it and figure out what's wrong. Thankfully, we were able to cut through it with a, with a handsaw. We were able to pull out the pump and we realized at the very bottom, for some reason, the bottom unit where, where the water first gets sucked in, it was clogged really thick with like mud and silt. Mm. And that is unusual because usually that that doesn't happen um the water at the in the bottom of these wells when they're really deep a lot of times the water as it as it from rain and and from rivers and and just like um runoff as it flows through the or seeps through the ground it it gets filtered and it becomes pretty clean at the bottom actually um but we you know we had to we had theories of like maybe the the walls in the inside of the well had collapsed and kicked up a lot of dust and silt and so for that reason it was getting clogged and whatnot but this was just a really crazy example. Thank, thank goodness we actually figured out what it was. Um, it was being clogged. And so once we knew that, we were able to switch out the bottom section. We had, fortunately had a spare in our truck. And then we shortened the straw by one length to maybe lift the bottom of the pump a little higher where there might not be as much dirt at the bottom of the well. Mm. We put everything back in. And finally, thankfully, it worked. And at that point, it was like pitch black outside. We were working by the headlights of our trucks oh <laughs> to try to get it finished. Um, but how rewarding. Absolutely. And, and it was an answer prayer. <laughs> like yeah. we, when we first encountered the issue, we were like, oh, my goodness, Lord, please give us wisdom to figure out what's going on. Because mm. this is, again, this was the first time we'd ever encountered that specific problem in the field. We have very limited supplies to work with. Um, our, our, our home base where we were headquartered was like, you know, at least a 30, 40 minute drive. So it would be really, it, it's not feasible to go there and back to try to get replacement parts. And so, um, and, and every time we do pump installations, the, the community that's going to be served by that pump, they always come out and watch because it's a big deal when they get this pump. And you could, you could see them there. You could sense already their disappointment. The fact that we were, we were thinking about, oh, maybe we got to pull this pump. Maybe we got to do something about it. Of and, um, and something that, was impressed upon me by our Zimbabwean teammates when we were when we were working there is, you know, like I said earlier, at Design Outreach, we talk a lot about sustainability, about long term, like giving these people water over time and consistency. But sometimes we get so caught up in that we forget that people also need water today. Like right. if we didn't put this well in that day, it was just another day that this community had to drink dirty water. Mm. And but to us, we, you know, in our logic, we said, okay, if we can't figure out the problem today, maybe we got to come back tomorrow, right, you know, maybe right. we'll have more tools, we'll have more time, it'll be daylight. But um, the Zimbabwean team members we were working with were like, no, we, we got to try to do this today, this community needs it. Mm. And yeah, so just working with all those feelings, all those, all those uncertainties, yeah. and um, still being able to by God's grace, figuring out what to do was, was amazing. And yeah. was a big lesson to me of like, this is hard work. <laughs> it's yes. not easy yes. to put in pumps. And, uh, you know, there's a cliche of like, if something's easy, everyone would do it. I think it's kind of true in this regard. Um, mm. 
and and again not to not to toot our own horn too much but but yeah it's it's not easy work um, your horn is worth tooting honestly <laughs> like i i am completely amazed by the process of it all and even just the heart behind it too is uh, so cool like Man, I wish I had known about this, you know, when I was in college, honestly. And I hope people listening, you know, will know that you can you can bring your passions with your faith and make it into something so great and which a lot of my guests do, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um but okay, so I have another question. Like I don't know if you know the answer to this though. Like is it expensive? Like, where does the money come from <laughs> to make mm. these pumps? No, that's a really good question. Um, and and you're onto something. And the short answer is um, it's not cheap. Uh-huh. Um, there's a reason why, I mean, there's many reasons why the traditional hand pumps that I was talking about, the ones with pistons, excuse me, there's many reasons why those were so popular. Mm. And there's, there's so many of them in the world. One of them is they're cheap. They're really easy to make oh, and manufacture. And actually... The designs for a lot of those hand pumps are now um, public domain, so you can just look them up online and have access to the to the sketches, right? Like oh, you can't do that for any other product from a for profit company. And we don't we don't release our um, designs and and engineering drawings either because we we have that's our intellectual property, right? Right. But um, these hand pumps that have become standardized and used throughout the world by so many NGOs, even by the UN, like they're so common and they were, you know, there was so much effort put into them. Now they're, they're public domain. Anyone can use them. I see. Um, and so they become very cheap. Um, cheap doesn't necessarily mean good though. Um, that was something I was learning. Uh, I am learning a lot through this work is that sometimes we, we bring like a double standard to the, to the products that we produce for people who are um, in poverty. We, we think that cheap, means oh it must be better um and that cheap is what they want because they can't afford more and and, and we just set a very low standard a very low bar for that so um even though that's ultimately not what is benefiting them and helping them that that's an aside but Mm -hmm. uh, the life pump yeah it's not it's not cheap it is more expensive than a lot of these traditional options um but we feel like when when you see the effect and impact it has on these communities and you you see the long-term benefit and you see the ways that traditional hand pumps have actually failed we have good evidence of it it's not just us trying to you know market ourselves differently it's it's like look at the data and and how these people are after uh, decades after decades still suffering and still not having reliable access to water so so we think it's worth it um but where does that money come from that's a really good question um there are uh, a few main sources so one is through fundraising and donation. So we are in touch with a lot of um, religious organizations and non-religious. So like churches and, and other small groups, sometimes they will hear about our work and be, be very um, excited about it and say, hey, we want to raise money for this. We want to raise enough money for a pump to give this money to design outreach. Then they can buy the parts. They can have them machined and manufactured and send it out to whatever community that they've now located, you know, is just the next in line to receive a pump. Yeah. Um, so um, fundraising and, and raising money that way, which is kind of, um, we, we obviously have a hand in that. We help them with the organization, with the fundraising and the logistics. But a lot of times fundraising from other sources or donate, just donations from people um, is a big source of, of um, collecting the, the, the revenue to do this work. In other cases, um, we actually also sell our pumps as if they were just like a normal product. And we'll sell pumps to 
really big organizations that I, I won't name names, but there's some really big Christian organizations that do humanitarian work. And for them, rather than them, um, they, they buy at big scales, right? Not just one or two pumps at a time. They'll buy 10, 20, 30 pumps at a time. See, and it's a lot better for them to just um, purchase the pumps, have full control over them. And they, they now have ownership and can install them. And um, um, one way or another, we have to, you know, like you, like you, like you were thinking, cover the cost of that. Um, and, and that's how we do it. So, so very rarely do we, I think never do we put the entire burden and cost on a community to say, like, mm-hmm. if you want this pump, you got to pay for it. No, a lot of times we understand the circumstances. We're not, we're not um, ignorant of, of how that um, they don't necessarily have the means to pay for it. Um, or if they, or, or a, the, the, the economic, you know, capital that they have a lot of times is animals or, or it's other, you know, other things that we wouldn't even think about exchanging in terms of, in terms of money. So it's coming from these other sources. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we do also ask the communities to be a part of the transaction. So Mm -hmm. sometimes they, or a lot of times, you know, I was saying earlier how before we install a pump, the hole has to be drilled. There has to be concrete laid. And sometimes a lot of times there's bricks that are made around the pump to kind of give it a, a foundation for the water to run off. So it doesn't get all muddy and stuff. That work we ask the communities to do, and a lot of times the maintenance of the pump we ask we we try to train a few members of the community to take leadership of that, and um, so they can do minor repairs. And then for bigger work, they they would contact us, contact more expert technicians. But um, in all of this, we're trying to engage the communities to again like show and demonstrate that we're trying to do this with them, and we're trying to be partners with them, not just coming in and, and, and dumping aid and then right. leaving. Yes. Um, and we find that in the long term, when people feel like they have ownership, they have agency over this technology, they also care for it better and it lasts longer. And it just, it's just, uh, there's just greater outcomes that way. Yeah. Just so, that ripple effect that happens. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Daniel, I've been asking you a lot about your organization and stuff like that, but I really do want to know too about your education and how you got into like deciding to be a mechanical engineer um, as well. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, the technical side of your job, so are you doing, I know you said you're working on the gearboxes, but can I ask like, what does that exactly mean? Like, are you doing the actual designing part or like, figuring out ways to make it better or yeah. What does that look like? Yeah. Another great question. (laughs) (laughs) So as a junior engineer, um, I can't be tasked with making a lot of the really important decisions. (laughs) I'll I'll admit to that because I don't have the experience yet. And and because I don't have that, that subject matter knowledge. Um, and, and this leads into another, you know, really interesting, um, aspect of design outreach. Again, our team is really small. So not only can we not afford to always do the work in the field, even just amongst our, you know, only half the staff of our 12 to 15 is, is R&D engineers. Mm-hmm. So if it was just up to us to do the work that we need to do, we would be swamped and, and it would just be so overwhelming. We rely a lot on volunteers to um, be part of our work. So I think from this past year, we probably had between 45 and 60 like regular um, volunteers who showed up on a regular basis and contributed to our work. A lot of times these are um, retired or still currently working like engineers, um, business people, other other experts in their fields who, when they've heard about design, outreach, said, wow, that's amazing. I actually want to be involved in that. I want to use my off time. I want to use um, my retirement even to contribute to this. And wow. 
I mean, that's, that's an amazing testimony, I think, of, of how God is using people and, and, and can use all people in any stage of life. But um, for me, what that looks like is this project. So, for instance, this Gearbox project, um, the team is like half uh, full-time staff and half volunteers. And these volunteers wow. are the people who are making a lot of those big calls about, you know, I've spent 30, past 34 years designing Gearboxes. So I know how this works. I have an intuition for this. And I think we should we should test this material, or I think we should um, make this gear that much bigger or smaller to change the change the physics of how it's working. Mm-hmm. And then um, it falls on me as the full-time person to kind of execute on that because I'm here, you know, 40 hours a week when I the volunteers, see. you know, they're volunteers. So they, they're not there all the time. Um, but when they are there, they, they give really, really important advice, really important guidance. Wow, so what it's a this wonderful really, system. Yeah, very interesting collaboration. Uh, yeah. I mean, truly, like, that's God, like, working. Because I Amen. feel like that's such an interesting way and a dynamic to work together like that as volunteers and full-time staff. Um, and, like, people really, like, their desire is to help. You know what I mean? Amen. Absolutely. It's so crazy. That's awesome. And- and if, okay. if you want to think about uh-huh. it on like a, sorry, I was just going to say, if, if you want to think about it at like a very uh, practical level, volunteers also, they don't need to be paid. And, and this, 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 this work that we do, it doesn't, it doesn't make money, right? We're, we're, mm. we're any f- extra funds or, or donations and fundraising goes back into the work that we do. And so it's just this amazing way that God is providing resources, even with, you know, limited funds that we may have sometimes, like the fact that people feel called and compelled to be part of the work. Yeah. Like you said, it's amazing. So absolutely. Yeah. That's so great. Okay. So I, um, what I was going to ask was, um, take me back to high school, Daniel. Like when did you decide, like, I'm going to go to tech and be a mechanical engineer? (laughs) You know, I, I think I made the choice to pursue engineering, um, I wouldn't say without thought because I thought about it a lot, but mm-hmm. I guess it wasn't uh, looking back. It wasn't super serious <laughs> thoughts. I, I knew, and I, I knew I always enjoyed math, science, physics, those kinds of hard STEM, hard sciences in those subjects. I also knew that I liked how things worked mm-hmm. and I liked understanding that. And so, and that already put engineering in, you know, kind of a promising category and looking towards college. I said, you know, I, engineering is such a big field and I don't want to like narrow myself too much because I don't know exactly what I want. So mechanical engineering, which is the broadest of engineerings, um, allows you to do a lot of things. You can, you can end up working on airplanes. You can end up working on cars. You can, um, sometimes end up working, being a structural engineer and building bridges and roads. So, um, I said, you know, I don't want to commit myself just yet. Let's just do mechanical engineering and, and then we'll see where, where life takes me. So that's how I ended up doing ME. Um, and, uh, my, my pursuit or my, my decision to, to do school, um, was also a very practical decision. I applied to eight schools and got into maybe five or six of them. And then it quickly narrowed down to just two options, Georgia tech or Ohio state, which is my, my state school here in Ohio. And it was just narrowed down based on cost. And, um, because of, um, very special life circumstances that I was able, that I'm very blessed to have, uh, even though Georgia tech was out of state, it became the same price as Ohio state. Like, like it was, it was on par which in some ways is a blessing, but also it was like, why didn't Ohio State give me more aid because I'm in state? But anyhow, it it made price, you know, it was the lowest two prices of all my college options. And, um, and I, and I just chose between the two of them. And I Mm. said, you know, I want to do engineering and Georgia Tech 
Um, not that rankings are any are everything, but it is highly more highly ranked, and so and because it's a tech school, it clearly devotes a lot more money and time sure. and energy towards those things. And I like the idea of leaving leaving home for school, so I yeah. decided to to go to Georgia Tech. Um, so that's how I ended up there, and uh, just continue with mechanical engineering through through my time there. Um, never really, yeah, didn't didn't think about changing my major or anything. Um, and then that's what I graduated with. So. Oh, wow. So kind of a straight shot. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. It, 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 maybe I make it sound easier than it was, but it, yeah. I, no, I didn't. If, you've, if anyone knows Georgia Tech, it's not an easy feat. <laughs> um, but uh, so at any point, so, I mean, I guess you didn't really question your decision um, as far as ME goes as being a mechanical engineer, or did you? Was there like, while you were doing your classes, were you like, was there any doubt at all that this is what you wanted to do or? Mm. I will say um, personally, just because of the people that I know and am friends with, a lot of my peers were computer science majors. Mm -hmm. And honestly, if I had to go back and choose again, I would probably consider it more seriously because it's, it's really hot right now and there's a lot oh, going yeah, on in that right. space. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, you know, I thought, engineering is still interesting. And, and, and as I was taking classes and doing work and meeting people and, and, and um, going through classes together with these other mechanical engineering friends, I said, you know, I still enjoy this. I still think this is meaningful. And um, to me, I liked the idea that um, hopefully in my future with mechanical engineering, I get to do more hands-on stuff. Mm. Computer science, clearly you have to have a computer to do that work. Um, I was a little naive at the time to think that you don't need a computer as much in engineering work because you also use a lot of, you also are at your desk in front of a computer for a lot of your time as an engineer. But uh, it still gave me the chance to use my hands and, yes. and, and like work and see how things, things fit together. So that was, that was really appealing to me. Um, while I was in college and, and studying mechanical engineering, I did try to um, root out some other things about whether um, I wanted to, you know, specialize or pursue that specifically. So I had one internship with Honda R&D uh, because I like cars. And so I wanted to say, hey, maybe maybe the automobile industry will be interesting. Um, and after working, my, my biggest takeaway from that was it, it can be interesting, but my experience, my specific experience wasn't that motivating. I, I didn't like being in a really big company that um, has a specific culture and, and a specific pace of mm. moving, which can sometimes feel really slow. Yeah. And, um, and I, yeah, I just couldn't imagine doing that right out of school. So then I also, during, during my time in college, I did um, two different research labs, undergraduate research labs, because I also was kind of attracted to the idea of graduate school and eventually pursuing a PhD. Um, the, the fun fact is uh, everyone else in my family, so my mom, my dad, and my sister, they all have their PhDs. So oh, not oh my that, goodness. I have a very, <laughs> yeah, very uh, um, elite pedigree in that sense. Wow. Um, and, and, and I think I maybe felt a little bit of pressure from that. And sure, like, oh, maybe, maybe I should pursue it myself, you know, maybe. Of course. Um, but, and, and I liked, I've always liked the idea of teaching and uh, I've, I've enjoyed tutoring other, other students when I've, when I've had the chance and, um, so I, but professorship is, is one is actually very little teaching often and mostly research. And I wanted to know for myself, do I really like research? Can I handle it? Am I the kind of person who would enjoy this? So I did two different research labs and through both of them, I 
I decided, no, I'm actually not that kind of person. It mm. takes a, I think research is really important. It's really valuable. It's really interesting mm-hmm. when you talk about it at a high level, mm-hmm. but the day-to-day for me is really hard to go through because you're taking this really big, cool picture of where you want to go and how you want to improve the world. And then you're just taking a very small slice of it. And it's easy for me to lose sight of that big picture. And a lot of times, at least in my, and how I see it in my understanding and my experiences, even after you have your results from your research, it may never go to market. It may never become relevant to the world. No one may ever see it or read it for mm. 10, 20 years or, or never. And that to me, I was like, oh, I, I like seeing more immediate results. And, right, and, yeah. and I, I, me uh, too, me too. It's hard for me to be that kind of person. Yeah. <laughs> so if anything, the things that I did in college, you know, like internship and research, they were kind of failures in the sense that I ended up not liking them, but they were valuable in, in that I know I don't have to pursue this anymore. Right. This yeah, isn't no, something I think I it was super valuable. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're if you failed it because I just feel like, wow, what an opportunity to take advantage of that in college and realize before you graduate and decide to pursue this career that you didn't even know you didn't really enjoy, you know? Right. Um, right. That's pretty cool. Um, so after you graduated, you decided not to pursue your PhD, maybe right away, I'm assuming, maybe down the line, right? We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, yeah, so I guess you were, you alluded to it in the beginning of our, our discussion, our chat this, this evening. Um, like, how did you find out about design outreach? Like what, what yeah. were the things that happened in order for you to work there today? Mm-hmm. So I graduated, my last semester was the spring of 2020. And that was when the COVID pandemic was you right. know, really, that was when it was really hitting and quarantine was happening. And my, my semester got cut short, cut in half. I had to, everyone had to go back home. So I went back to Columbus and was um, finishing classes online. And during that time, still job searching too. But um, at, at the time, I really wanted to stay living and working in Atlanta. Um, it was the first time I had basically left home for an extended period, and I really loved the city. I had developed so much community there, and I wanted to work there. So a lot of my job search was focused there, but probably partly from my own enthusiasm and how much diligence I had in job search, but also because of COVID, my job search went really poorly, and it was it was really hard to land interviews, and it was, it was really common for people to be ghosting me. So that was a really discouraging time. Discouraging, man. yeah, absolutely. But uh, in parallel to that. Um, so right before we left campus because of COVID, um, I that was when I first learned about design outreach. It was like it's probably like February, late February, early March, 2020, and it was because um, my mom, who you know still lives here in Columbus and, and works at a company, she works she works for a chemical database company that's actually a pretty big employer to Columbus, so it's pretty well known. And design outreach actually. Uh, had did a partnership with um, her company, CAS is what it's called, to fundraise together. So this was an example of not like church groups or individuals, but actually sure. companies who would say, hey, we want to fundraise, we want to commit to maybe matching funds from our employees for a life pump. So Greg, one of the co-founders and the CEO of Design Outreach, he went to CAS, gave a speech, uh, kind of a keynote speech about, about the fundraising and about the work that they do. And through that, my mom was able to meet him and said, oh, you're engineering you're an engineer, you have an engineering company. My son's an engineer, he's about to graduate. Can I connect you two? Because this might be something he's interested in. So Greg and I had a call. That was the first time I learned about design outreach. And he told me, he told me all about the work that they do and the mission, the vision. And I was genuinely interested. 
Um, but even over the phone, I remember telling him like, I will think about it. <laughs> when I said, think about it, I really meant think about it. Like mm. not, not really considering it because at the time that was the first time I'd ever learned that there was a way that you could, you know, pair Christian, like faith with engineering work. And it was just like, so kind of bizarre to me. It was really cool, but I was like, this is not at all what I imagined mm. doing after college. Mm. And, um, and for, for multiple reasons, one to me, I thought, you know, going to nonprofit work and in a small company, I wouldn't be able to learn or develop very quickly. Sure. And a lot of people told me that, hey, the first couple, you know, your early 20s and early 30s or your 20s and early 30s of your career is essential to developing a really strong foundation. If you want to keep progressing your career, you want to, you want to, you know, make a make a good career out of make make a good career for yourself. You have to you have to take advantage of those years. So I thought, oh, maybe this company wouldn't set me up for that kind of success. Maybe I would want to come back to this after going to a big company that's more established and whatnot. Um, and and I'll be I'll be very honest too. Uh, I didn't study mechanical engineering to make a lot of money, but when I learned that that often is part of the deal, I came to expect it. Or I said, oh, you know, that's something that I would really like. And frankly, working for nonprofit work doesn't lead to that a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, doesn't lead to a lucrative career. And, and that was hard for me at the time. I yeah, said, yeah. I don't know if I want that. Um, so I, I, I was very honest with Greg and I, I didn't say everything that I'm saying now, but I said, you know, I'll think about it. This is really interesting. You know, I'll, I'll keep it on the back burner. Um, fast forward six, seven months, I was back home. I had graduated after um, completing my classes virtually. Job search was still going poorly. And at that point, I was like, hmm, maybe I, maybe I should consider design outreach more, not necessarily out of desperation, but just, you know, I'm back in Columbus. And um, I think it's, I think it's not just coincidence that design outreach is based here in Columbus. If no, it wasn't here, it's if not. it wasn't here, and Greg didn't have that conversation with my mom, I don't think I'd ever hear about this company. It's right. so small, didn't know this kind of thing existed. But now that I was back, I actually reached out to them again. I had an in-person conversation for the first time and I met, met Greg for the, for the first time and, and we talked more and, and I knew that he was someone who I could shoot really straight with from the, from the beginning. So I told him a lot of my reservations, just point blank. I said, Hey, you know, these are the things that make me kind of wary of this job. And I, I think it's exciting, but these things kind of scare me, honestly, this is not at all what I thought engineering would look like after I graduated. And he had really great things to say and push back on, um, He's also a believer. I mean, I think all the all the people at our company are, are Christians, um, and he, yeah, had a lot of had a lot of challenging things to say about like the ways I think about money, the ways that I think about success and career, and um, just left me with a lot to chew on. And so ultimately, I, I came back home, spent a month praying about it, talking with friends and family, I'm continuing to job search, still wasn't going anywhere, <laughs> and um, just after a lot of deliberation and. And just thinking about it, ultimately, I was like, you know, I think this is something I want to pursue. And um, it wasn't like a sudden light bulb moment. It was just a culmination of just a lot of thoughts, a lot of a lot of thinking about what do I want in life? What am I trying to get out of my career? And, um, you know, what does it mean to honor God? Mm-hmm. And ultimately, that led me to pursue the job with Design Outreach. So I applied, um, went through the whole application process, um, got the job, and then I still didn't start working just yet because um, another critical and very unique part of our work is that um, all the full-time staff are support raised. So I don't know if that terminology means anything to you or to others, but, (laughs) but like, it's, it's very similar to, I guess, how um, missionaries are supported, right? They're not paid for their work. Exactly. Campus staff. Yeah. So all the full-time staff at design average are also support raised. So we have to 
go to our friends and family, just anyone in our network, sometimes beyond our network, to share about this work and say, hey, um, we would love to partner with you and basically um, you donate and support us financially to allow me to do the work that I do. Um, to say it very frankly, like, that's what that's how I get paid. <laughs> that's how I get paid yeah. to do this work. Yeah. And um, so that was a whole nother uh, very interesting journey because wow. Um, I, I knew that this job was support waste from the beginning. That was that was another kind of my struggle of, of, of whether I wanted to do this or not. I had never done anything like that before. I'd never gone on missions before, so I never had to support race for anything. And there were so many doubts in my mind of mm-hmm. like, can I even do this? Like, can I communicate this well to people and, and get them excited and but not lie to them? Like, like show my heart for this work, but but also be genuine and also, I, I had so many doubts about like, do I even know enough people? Do I know the right people? Because mm-hmm. in my mind, people who enter ministry and these kinds of support race positions, typically they're married or they have families already. They just have big social circles. My social circle was mostly people who just graduated like me. Sure, <laughs> like they're yeah. only just starting their jobs. Like who's yeah. going to give to this? Who Like how am I even going to make this work? And, um, and, and Design Outreach didn't, you know, just leave us just throw us into the pool. Like they gave us training, you know, they, they gave us some setup and material to work with, but a lot of the hard work was just on us to, to, to prepare and just go out and talk to people. So um, starting from November until uh, mid February, three and a half months, I spent support raising and I had these specific goals that I had to reach before I could start working with the company um, because um, they wouldn't let me work without paying me and I needed, and I needed to reach that goal. And um to some people, three and a half months may sound like a long time, but it's actually really fast. <laughs> the training that we went to for support raising, they said um, it typically takes people, even for people who are working or support raising full-time, like I was, because I wasn't working another job. I wasn't in school anymore. People support raising full-time can take um, like six to 12, more often eight to 12 months to, to get there. I believe um, it, Because yeah. it takes a lot of time to meet with people, to mm-hmm. follow up for people. You know, just because you have a meeting with someone doesn't mean they're going to feel called to give. So to have reached my goal in three and a half months was, again, God showing his, his hand at work and providing say, those resources. I was going to say, if you did that in three and a half months with no problem and people were willing to commit, it was pretty clear, I feel like, where God wanted you. <laughs> I think so, too. I think so, too. And, and I, I really can't take credit for it because I had never done support raising before. You can ask some of the people I met with, like the first people I ever met with. Uh-huh. My, my speech was really not, not confident, and I was, I was stumbling, and I, I, it was uncomfortable. I didn't know how to talk about it. It is. And, it's a, and it's still, a, it worked out. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not, yeah. no. Oh man! So yeah, okay, so, so you came up with the f- the funds within three months. Three and a half months, I, I reached ninety um, percent of our my support goal. So our our company, you know, a lot of organizations when they ask their staff to support raise, they have their own goals. So for us, it's ninety percent. And once you reach ninety percent, um, you can start working, and then the last ten percent, you you can raise that while you're working. Okay. Over, over the first year of your of your of your full time work, so. Yeah, I was able to reach that goal and start working in March. So, so March was was my start date, March first this year, and so now I'm I'm only approaching like six months <laughs> of no, working at this company. But I mean, everything that you've explained to me and the things that you've done and the trip that you've taken to see the work being done. I mean, Daniel, in my book, you are saving the world. You are contributing to, you know, to 
the the mission statement that you presented to me at the very beginning of our conversation and I am so inspired right now it's like so wonderful it's so great um you know I want to ask you like before we're coming up kind of like on an hour a little bit I have, um, I have time. <laughs> oh, you do? Good, good. Yeah. <laughs> good, good. Um, yeah, I wanted to know, I mean, you kind of already laid it out for me, like some of the benefits of your job or what you enjoy about it. But could you reiterate it for me again? Like, what do you like most about what it is that you do? Because I feel like, you know, even though it sounds wonderful, hmm. um, it's challenging. Like, I've heard bits and pieces now where... I mean, fundraising, number one, like, is not an easy thing. I will I will be transparent with you right now. Um, when I first graduated college, I contemplated being um, a Campus Crusade staff. Mm. And, um, yeah, like, I, that was one of the factors. I was like, man, I don't know if I can do that. Like, right, right. And um, it's intimidating. But, you know, for me, it's like, wow, God really had a hand in favor over over you in doing that process. Oh, by the way, so your parents were okay with this? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um so so yeah, to give a little bit your more background. Your PhD parents were okay with yeah. this? I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. My 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 parents my parents are actually separated and my dad is not a believer but my mom is. I see. Um, that's even so more challenging, I feel it, like. It it was. And so for my dad, it was it was naturally, I was a surprise. It was difficult for him to understand this mm-hmm. direction, this choice, because he doesn't see importance or much value in the faith aspect, which is so foundational to our work. Mm-hmm. So for him, um, you know, he can see the humanitarian benefit. He, sure. he can he can definitely admit to that, but he was still like, yeah, this doesn't seem like it really sets up your career. It seems like, you know, he's, he, his, his compromise was that this is something you can try for now and, and just see how it works. But like, I don't see this as a long-term career for you. And I think this is, this is just, a when you're in your early twenties, you can, you can just try new things. Um, for my mom and my sister, who's also a big part of my, my older sister is a big part of my life. And she's also a, a Christian. The two of them were also had some reluctance when I first shared about this job with them. They said, Oh, support raising sounds really hard. Um, this work sounds really unique and even unusual but the more that i talked with them the more that i think i prayed about it and and showed my heart for it i'm so grateful that they were really supportive and they said you know if this is something you feel called to like we're there for you we're we're for you and um and we want to see you succeed in this too so uh, i was really blessed by that and and to have their their buy-in yeah yeah yeah, that's great. Okay, so uh, what I was saying was, oh yes, mm. so there are a lot of challenges in your work, even though like the bigger picture of things in the package is like incredible, right? But yeah, like what do you enjoy the most? Hmm. I I'll, I think several several big things come to mind. One. Um, which I, I kind of touched on earlier is being able to see um, the overall journey and like full picture, full circle of the work that we do mm-hmm. is really, uh, really satisfying and fulfilling for me. Um, at least I, again, I don't have experience. This is my first full-time engineering position, but I imagine for 
other people who are working in really big companies, really big corporations, Honda R&D, that's what I have experience with. You are, uh, to, to be efficient and to be, to be effective as a company, you typically specialize. You have to focus on one thing and you have that one part that you're, that you're, that you're contributing to. And um, maybe you don't necessarily see what it looks like in the final product. Sure, yeah. um, you just know that you're contributing, you're working together well as a team with all these other departments. But for us, like, because we're a small team, everyone's involved in many different ways. I've seen what it looks like to take a design from a drawing, to be prototyping it, to be testing it, maybe just in little ways, but I've seen all those things to now being in the field and seeing it go into the ground and seeing people get water from it. Like that, that full picture, you know, I don't think, I don't take that for granted. Like being able to see that and be a part of it is really cool. And to, and just to know I had a hand in like many different places along the way. That's, that's really awesome. Mm. I think another thing is I'm very blessed by, uh, my whole team, all the coworkers and staff on that, on, uh, at the company. Um, th- this is a, a personal preference um, because I'm a Christian, but I mean, because all our staff are Christian, you know, every morning we have um, what we call the all hands meeting where we just kind of update, you know, what's our uh, good things that are happening? What are things that are difficult and like kind of some prayer requests. And then we'll pray together as a team because we believe prayer and our faith is just so core to everything that we do. And that God is really the one who's doing this work and we're just trying to follow his lead and obey well. And that to have that kind of environment to work in is, is really fascinating. And again, I don't have perspective for what it looks like to be in a non-Christian workplace, but I can still tell that this is special. Yeah, it's not and like that. <laughs> yeah, it's not like that everywhere. And, and um, you know, that doesn't mean it's without difficulty. Like we still right. say things yeah. unintentionally and, and hurt each other. And, right. and there were even moments last week where I was, I didn't realize a coworker was expecting me to stand up for her and, um, and, and for, for a certain design choice. And I, mm-hmm. I was kind of just, you know, hands off. And she mm-hmm. said afterwards, like, oh, I thought you were like, I thought you were had my back. What was going mm-hmm. on? So, you know, we still have tension just like any workplace, but um, the fact that we all have this common foundation and this common mission, I think is, is just such a cool, um, cool team dynamic to have. Um, so that, that's really great. And, um, I think, yeah, there's just so many, the, the fact that I, that I got to travel and, and experience something I never, I'd never been to Africa before, let alone on, on a missions trip. And so to, to have that experience, to have my eyes open to a, a bigger part of the world, and um, it is, is just such a privilege. I realize that's really not common for a lot of people. Um, and, you know, amongst my friend group, probably I'm the only one who will ever go to Zimbabwe, you know, like, yeah. like it's, um, so there's just so much special about this job and, and the work that we get to do um, that, but th- those are the big things that come to yeah. mind. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, you know, I'm curious, Daniel, do you happen to know if there are other like organizations similar to yours? I do know that some exist. Um, right. And I, and I know those because we partner with them or a lot right, of times right. we work with them. <laughs> so there are, um, I don't know the names off the top of my head, um, but, but I know some of the contacts, um, and there, there, there's a version of basically design outreach that focuses more on civil construction. So like building roads and bridges that exists. There's one that's also focused on, or it also does work with water. Um, but rather than building hand pumps, they focus on piped water, like, like normal plumbing, like we would see in our own homes. And that obviously serves a different population, not rural, uh, rural communities, um, where, where it would be unsustainable to have that kind of infrastructure, but in more urban environments, mm-hmm. when there's more dense populations, there, those kinds of organizations exist. 
Um, but like very broadly, there's not that many. Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's not a super um, populated, populated space to, right. to be both Christian and engineering and, and have these things come together. So, nice. yeah. But there are options. <laughs> there are options out there if you look for them. And, and I don't, I, I can't say I could direct you to all of them, but I, I know the people who could. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awesome. Okay. Um, well, I feel like did was there anything else you wanted to share that I maybe missed or you wanted to talk about? Hmm. Um I will okay, I guess there's a little bit more detail I can give about the company broadly. Um and I I've been talking pretty much this whole time about life pump and mm-hmm. about water because that's um something we that was something the co-founders had a passion and vision for you know early on and they they knew they wanted to serve the water problem and the water crisis across you know across the world but that isn't the only thing that design outreach wants to be known for we're not just a water pump company but we also gonna ask you that like yeah okay okay but we want to be known broadly as um an r&d humanitarian technology company so um again there are really big uh, Christian nonprofits, NGOs, who I won't name, but a lot of times the they they also provide these kinds of technologies to serve people. But a lot of times they themselves don't have their own R and D department doing the development. They oh, buy I the technology see. from someone else, okay. or someone else makes it for them, which isn't necessarily wrong or bad. But it means you don't have control over your own design. You kind of just are at the mercy of whoever you're buying it from, your supplier. We, you know, our our very big vision. Our, our CEO always casts very big visions for our company. We eventually want to be known as the go-to R and D company for those kinds for the world's nonprofits, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, and not because we're necessarily ruthless and pushing everyone else out of the field, but because um, we want a reputation of work that is really excellent that serves people really well, mm-hmm. and we back it up with this commitment um, to go back to them for this long-term reliability, this long-term serving these people, and also sharing the gospel with them. Mm-hmm. So. With that being said, um, water and sanitation is one big area that we're focusing on. So Life Pump is just one of the technologies. There's also some other ones that we've developed there. And then the two other sectors that we are currently moving in towards, one right now with a little more progress than the other, are global health and agriculture. Because these three categories we see as really foundational to um, a lot of the uh, impoverished world. That, that is really lacking in, in infrastructure and technology and just has been really left behind in development. And um, another, another terminology or another term we use a lot when we talk about this work is appropriate technology. Mm. Um, appropriate meaning um, it's appropriate for the, for the places that, that, that they're being used and the people that we're trying to serve. So another, I think, uh, fallacy or, or another um uh, kind of misstep that a lot of traditional humanitarian approaches take, I, I would say is we try to use technology that we've um, on, honestly optimized and maybe perfected for use in the first world. And we just drop it in third world countries and expect it to be useful. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes we'll give them our used technology, lightly used, or sometimes sure. even new. Yeah. And I think there's good heart, there's good motivation behind it. But there's so many impracticalities to that, that a lot of times um, people and countries and, and companies who donate never see or never really think about. And an example of that is um, right now, one of the technologies we actually were um, uh, 
I, I wasn't doing it personally, but uh, my other uh, two of my other team members were on our trip to Zimbabwe. We were talking with Karanda Mission Hospital for um, we're talking about their need for something called a wound vacuum pump. So this technology exists in the U.S. and basically for really deep wounds, really like um, I don't know much about this because it's not my area expertise, but for really deep wounds, a lot of times to get them to heal properly and heal efficiently, you would basically put something on it that it's like a vacuum. It creates suction. It creates negative pressure, a vacuum. And by pulling up on the skin, it like increases blood flow. It increases healing and, you know, and it's, it's, it's pretty common. And it's, it's a, it's a go-to, um, um, care for a lot of people in the U.S. for for certain kinds of injuries and um, for ailments, and um, there have been examples of you know taking these wound vacuum pumps and dropping them in Africa and hoping that they would work, and they don't. Uh, first of all, um, these pumps need electricity. Electricity is something that we're so you know take for granted in the U.S. is not always available in these rural hospitals, or it's inconsistent. And um, even if you have electricity, it's not even the same voltage. It's not the same, you know, rating. It doesn't have the same outlet. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of times because of um, the supply chain, just like the, the wealth of resources we have in the United States, we are able to make a lot of medical technology use reusable parts or disposable one-time use things, which is good in terms of hygiene. Um, like there's a lot of advantages to that, but it requires you to be able to get things really quickly and to mm -hmm. constantly have supply of that um that is that that is really impractical implausible in these um countries and these communities with our which are really rural which are really far removed from big cities um and so either they have to reuse things um and in a way that makes it non-hygienic and more dangerous or they just have to go without so they need, but they need this wound vacuum pump. They also have cases of patients who need this technology, but there's no appropriate technology for them. So design outreach, what we're trying to do is say, you know, Karanda has made us a parent of this. They're a partner of ours. They made us uh, aware of this problem. And now we're trying to do some investigation and, and research to say, how can we design something that is appropriate that could be used for this? You know, ideally it'd be lower cost, but never to compromise on quality and, and basically something that would serve these people well, because, um, there's a saying um, that that we also another saying that we have in the office, which is um, ninety percent of the world's tech of the or what is it ninety percent of the world's um, products are developed for only ten percent of its population. Ooh. Um, if you think about <laughs> smartphones, if you think about cars, right. if you think about you know, computers, really. <laughs> almost, yeah, so much stuff is developed for just a really small portion of the people yeah. who live on the earth. Yeah. And, you know, it plays right into this whole dynamic of appropriate technology and how there's so many yeah. people who are left behind, so many people who aren't getting what they need and mm -hmm. don't even have basic necessities. Like that's, that's like what's really, you know, dire about the situation. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm using a lot of phrases that, that Greg used and has kind of imparted on me, but this is like the why of design outreach, why we exist, why it needs to exist and why it's important that we do this work because yes. there's so many people who aren't being served this way. And, um, and it'd be easy for us to just focus on doing the technology, but we maybe make it harder for ourselves by also bringing the gospel piece. Mm. You know, that may mean we get less funding. Maybe people who would give to a, a, a secular organization won't give to us because we're Christian uh, mm. affiliated. And, um, but we've made the decision that like, for us, it's um, to bring <laughs> to bring uh, flowing, reliable water, but also living water to these people. Like that, th those yes. together, <laughs> that's go. that's crucial. You know, that's what's <laughs> that's what's really going to change people's lives. So, um, 
yeah, if, if it sounds like I'm, uh, have this rehearsed, it's because I've heard it so many times and, and I believe it now, like this, the, 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 the context that we're working in situation and, and how urgent it is and, and why we have to be doing this work. So this is fantastic. I love every single part <laughs> of it. I think, I mean, and I just, I mean, honestly, it's practicality, you mm. know, bringing together with what we believe as Christ followers and executing it. There's nothing better, you know, for me, because I, I too like immediate results too, like seeing the work happen. And man, it's just, I'm so blessed by this conversation right now. It's so great. And my eyes have been open to the possibilities, right. Of like faith and, and career coming together, you know, yeah. Um, so it's really great, Daniel. Do you have any advice? Like, I don't want to say like advice about your job really, but just any advice at all to like a young person listening to this podcast right now? Uh, yeah, I think I do. I think, um, I think one thing I'll say, so two things, one thing quickly is, you know, as much as I've said and kind of promoted design outreach, because I I really do believe in the mission and the, the work that we're doing is valuable and needed. This does not diminish work that is not so clearly tied to the gospel or, or not, um, you know, producing technology for the other 90% of the world. There's value and importance to all the work that people mm-hmm. do. Um, you know, I talked about fundraising, the fact that all of our staff are support raised, the fact that we need to fundraise a lot of times to, you know, have the funds to then donate these pumps to people. That money has to come from somewhere. And mm-hmm. a lot of times people are called to jobs to make money so that they can give generously and so that they yes. can support the church and the body in the way that it's working all around the world. So um, not that that's the only reason you should take a job or not take a job, but um, don't think that this is the only way you can honor God in your work. I yes. think for me, this is the answer for me right now. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm blessed that God has given me the opportunity to take it. Um, but there's, there's so many ways that God can use you in your season, in your place, in your environment to serve. And I think that's, a, that's a big lesson I learned. Um, not to think that design outreach is the only way to, to, to live, you know? And, and then I think the second part of what I would say, maybe advice is again, something I'm learning a lot right now is, is humility mm. <laughs> um, because of the way that our, you know, projects work. And a lot of times I'm with uh, engineers who are 30, 40 years, my senior, who are much more experienced, have a lot of, like to them, it's like second nature, all these decisions and these things. Sure. I find myself asking so often, like, Hey, can you slow down? What does that mean? And if you know me as a person, I can kind of get prideful and I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to ask dumb questions. I don't want people to think I'm slow. And, you know, part of me is like, I, I got a college degree from Georgia tech. I should be able to know some of this. I should be able to figure this out. But, um, but humility is, is not that. Um, and, and being able to be confident in, in who you are. And if you're a Christian, who God says you are, I think goes a really long way and um, will make you just better as a worker, better as a, as a, better as a contributor, better as a friend. Like um, I'm continuing learning to put aside my pride and say like, it's okay that I don't know this. And um, if I approach this with the right heart, um, there's nothing to be ashamed of and I can do so much better work. And I think, I think I could have started that as early as college saying like, um, my grades don't define me saying like really owning those, those beliefs of like, um, you know, there's no stupid questions. And, and even if they are stupid questions to 
to uh, get to a place where people's opinions of me don't don't dominate what I think about, and I am not so concerned about my image. I, I want to be seen as someone who's humble and who's always willing to learn. That's that's like what I'm currently trying to trying to be like, not someone who knows it all. Um, no, but, but I but totally that... feel you in that, <laughs> you know, and I think I'm so thankful. Thank you for your transparency and vulnerability tonight. Um, but that last piece of, on humility, I think, is important for a lot of people to hear and including myself some days, you know, and, um, you know, in general, right, people that have degrees and stuff are, are prideful in the sense of, yeah, they've earned this. But I would even go as far as to say as um, as an Asian American people, right, like even more so it's embedded in us almost like that yeah. we have this pride and um, that is hard to to like, yeah, just just admit like, hey, I don't know the answer. <laughs> like how did you do that and it's so hard and I so I I really appreciate uh, you speaking out on that right now so thank you so much Daniel for everything thank you this was this was a lot of fun and just thinking about these questions makes me more grateful and and uh and makes me even more reflective about how I can be more humble and be better (laughs) yeah yeah well um well, Daniel, would you be okay if somebody maybe really enjoyed uh, this podcast episode and maybe had more questions for you? Would you be okay with me connecting them with you? Absolutely. I would love to have those conversations, um, whether it's about design outreach specifically or just about being a believer in the workplace mm-hmm. or just like being an engineer, what you feel called to. I love having those conversations and I will definitely make time for that. And, and if you are interested in design outreach specifically, um, please yeah, reach out. Um, we have, we're, we're trying to expand a lot right now. I, I just, a a, a plug, a, yeah, a shameless plug. No, that thank we're, you. We're, we're trying to look for, um, I mean, we're always looking for more people because there's so much work to be done. Mm. And, um, and we believe this is really important and we believe, um, this is a, this is an amazing opportunity to, to do that work if you feel called to it. So yeah, yeah. I really encourage that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Daniel. You guys, if you have any questions, feel free to reach out. You can DM me through social media or you can email me at podcastwigu at gmail.com and I'll get you connected with the right people. Um, Thanks again, Daniel. Um, Thanks again, guys, for listening. Until next time. Bye.